You know, in, I'm, I'm preaching this morning, and we're going to stand just a minute and read that passage on Daniel's prayer. This, this is the greatest man of prayer in Scripture, and we get to get in on his prayer. Um, very, very exciting to see what's in this prayer, um, it's, which is Daniel 9, verses 1 through 19. So feel free to turn with me uh, in your Bibles there. Albert Barnes speaks of this man who prayed. He says, the prayer was that of a prophet, a man of God, a man who loved his country, a man who was intent on the promotion of divine glory as the supreme object of his life. What a great quote by Albert Barnes. Well, turn with me please to Daniel chapter 9. If you don't mind standing together as we read God's word, I'll be reading through verse 19. So I won't read the entire chapter. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, in the lineage of the Medes, was, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments, we have sinned and committed iniquity and have done wickedly and rebelled even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, to our fathers, and all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us shame of face, as it is this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those near and those afar off, and all the countries to which you have driven them, because of the unfaithfulness that they have committed against you. O Lord, to us belongs shame of face, to our kings, our princes, our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. Yes, all Israel has transgressed your law, has departed so as not to obey your voice, therefore this curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. And he has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our judges who judge us by bringing upon us a great disaster. For under the whole heaven such has never been done as what was done, what has been done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God, that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept the disaster in mind and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works which he does, though we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, and made yourself a name as it is this day. We have sinned 
we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because for our sins and for the iniquity of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people are reproach to all those around us. Now, therefore, our God, hear our prayer, or hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications, and for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. O oh Lord, hear. O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. Thank you. You may be seated. There's much to be learned from this prayer. There are four points that we draw from this passage. First of all, the commitment to intense prayer that we see prior to the prayer in verses 1 through 3. Then confession of iniquity politicized. Well, we've got a lot of parallels going on here. Confession of iniquity politicized in verses 4 through 8. And then the curse still ignored and popular in verses 9 through 16. And then finally, the cry for immediate pity in verses 17 through 19. So first of all, we begin with a commitment to intense prayer. You know, as this new leadership had begun to settle in, and you know, by the way, it was the Babylonians who had taken them into captivity, and now they've just been conquered by the Medes and the Persians. And so Daniel now is able to examine the scriptures. He knows this shift not only points to a difference in what has happened in the kingdom that he's serving, but it also has been predicted by God, specifically. And you find that earlier, by the way, in the kingdoms, that Nebuchadnezzar's the head of gold, the Medo-Persian Empire, is that bronze right below it. So he knows that this has happened, and that is happening exactly in parallel with their return back to Israel. And so he begins to plead with God. He knows that 70 years of desolation has been determined for his people. Remember, God made it very clear that the, that the land may rest for its Sabbaths. Remember, God had told him, you know, I, I will allow you not to go into captivity if you'll just do one thing. If you'll just keep the Sabbath. I'll, I, won't, I won't let you go into captivity. Did they do it? Not at all. Not at all. They didn't care whatsoever. God said, okay, I'm going to let the land enjoy those Sabbaths. So for 70 years, the land enjoyed the Sabbaths that Israel had completely forsaken in disobedience against God. And so now, this time is possibly up. And Daniel begins to pray. You know, Daniel was deported as a slave. And now, possibly, now that his slave owners have changed, these new owners have killed the previous owners, 
And, of course, they're still in control of all the captives from Israel. And so Daniel begins in verse 1, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, in the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. And so he inherits the entire realm, the world empire. Daniel, of course, was the first from Israel. He and his friends were the first to be deported many, many years earlier. He had been deported, enslaved, emasculated, so that he could not have children. Along with others from Jerusalem, when he was first conquered by Nebuchadnezzar back in 605 B.C. And you remember the first three years they spent in training in order that they might be able to stand before the king. In order that they might be the king's counselors. Now this first year of Darius is in the 530s. So those first slaves of Israel now have been captive for about 70 years. It's coming up on 70 years. And Daniel knows it. Think about it. Now Daniel, he was actually very young when he was first deported. He probably would have been maybe... 15, 14, up to 19 possibly. But he would have been in his teens when he was deported into Babylon. And so now, 70 years later, he's getting older. But no doubt, in Daniel's mind, he wonders, which 70 years will this apply to? There was the first deportation with all of us. Then there's a second deportation that happens in 597. And then there's a third deportation that happens in 586. So he's saying, God, which one are you going to apply it to? By the way, his group was a very small group. Just a group of the leader's children, literally. They were trained then to be leaders in Babylon. So his is the smallest group of them all. And he's saying, God, which one? Which one will you do? The 70 years are about up. So if he was 14 to 19 years old, he's somewhere at this point between 84 and 89 years old after 70 years. If it's the second deportation that God applies the 70 years to, then he's going to be 93 to 98 years old. If it's the third deportation, he's going to be somewhere between 102 and 107 years old. So Daniel prays. That's what this prayer is about. Daniel's saying, God, will you have mercy? Will you have mercy? I find it fascinating. This, of course, corresponds to what occurs in Daniel chapter 6. And you remember that earlier, Daniel, though no one else seems to be praying, Daniel prays, and he prays faithfully three times a day. And when this change occurs in the empire, do you remember what happened? Do you remember they couldn't find anything wrong with Daniel? And do you remember what they did in order to accuse Daniel? They got the king to agree, and by the way, the Medo-Persian Empire was totally different from Nebuchadnezzar. And the fact that they had this concept that 
once they made a law, it's sure and set in stone, and you can't change it. So these others, who were also in leadership, decided to play upon that law. And you remember, they told the king, you know, if you want to know who is loyal to you, then have everybody pray to only you for just 30 days and sign it into the law of the Medes and the Persians. And the king falls for it, and he signs it. And as soon as the, probably the ink had not, no longer dried on that thing, and Daniel, of course, knows about it, and he prays just like he always did. And, of course, they can see him praying at his window, facing Jerusalem, just like he's always done. And he's willing, listen carefully, he's willing to risk his life in order to pray for only 30 days. Do you see where Daniel's at? I mean, this, is, this is immense. By the way, what is he praying for? Why is this so important to him? By the way, we notice in our passage, he's in, he's in sackcloth and ashes. Why is this so important? The 70 years are almost up for him. Is God going to be merciful? Is God going to let him go free? It sure doesn't look like it. There's nothing hitting that direction. In fact, they're even going after Daniel, the one guy at the top. Absolutely amazing. That brings us then to verse 2. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem. No doubt Daniel is studying Jeremiah. By the way, no doubt Daniel as a young child as a young person, he would have watched them persecute Jeremiah, the very guy he reads this book. He would have seen him persecuted because that occurs before they leave. He would have seen this. And he's one of the nobles. He knows what's going on. He's one of the nobles' children. And so he studies the book. I want you to turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 25. Jeremiah chapter 25 gives us Exactly where it says that it's 70 years. Starting in verse 9, Behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, says the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land, against its inhabitants, against all these nations all around, and will utterly destroy them and make them an astonishment, a hissing, a perpetual desolation. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstones, the light of the lamp, and this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Verse 12, then it will come to pass when 70 years are completed that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, says the Lord, and I will make it a perpetual desolation. Well, has God begun to judge? Yes. The Babylonian Empire is gone. Daniel's saying there's a change. God, will you have mercy? By the way, it's repeated again in the book of Jeremiah. 
And by the way, this is the reason why he prays. Look at Jeremiah chapter 29, just a couple pages over. If you look at verse 7, by the way, this letter is not just written to the captives in Israel. It's written to the king, Nebuchadnezzar. So who is next to the king who probably would have read and interpreted this letter to the king? Most likely Daniel. Well, look at verse 7 of Daniel of uh, Jeremiah 29. And seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it. For in its peace, you will have peace. By the way, I believe this is the reason why Daniel was so committed to prayer. He simply obeyed Jeremiah's letter. He would have read this letter to the king. The king knows he's supposed to pray. And he did it. In fact, he shuts down the whole empire because he's, he's the one actually interfacing with everyone. He shuts everything down three times a day. The entire empire. He stops it all to go pray in order to obey this verse. To seek the peace of the city where I've caused you to be carried away captive. By the way, who is he praying for? He's even praying for those people who took him captive. Who emasculated him. By the way, I didn't really share with you how much of a shame that was in Israel. If, if a priest was emasculated, he was not allowed. By the way, the priests were the ones who, who prayed, who, who did the intercession for Israel. And he was not even allowed to go into the temple. He was, he was only allowed to eat the holy things, but he wasn't even allowed to go in. But it got worse for a person who wasn't even a priest. At least a priest got to go into the temple area. A person who was not a priest and he was a Jew, and yet he was emasculated. By the way, this is found in Leviticus 21, 16 through 23, and then Deuteronomy 23, 1, speaks of the common Jew. And if the common Jew was emasculated, just like what happened to Daniel and his friends, do you know he was not even allowed into the temple courtyard? What was the temple? It was a house of prayer. Do you see all the, all the things discouraging Daniel in prayer? This would have been a great shame to Daniel, a great discouragement to Daniel. And yet, Daniel commits to pray like no one else does. And he's got everything going against him. He wonders if God even accepts him. You see how this works? This is astounding. And yet Daniel prays. And he does in obedience to Jeremiah 29, the letter written. But I want you to look further down in this letter. Verse 10, For thus says the Lord, After seventy years are completed, at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. And I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back 
from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord. And I will bring you to the place from which I have caused you to be carried away captive. God promises after 70 years he's going to bring them back. The question is, which 70 years? Well, which deportation is that 70 years going to apply to? And so Daniel begins to pray. Verse 3 of Daniel chapter 9. Then I set my face toward the Lord God and made request by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And you know, we're kinda, we would be allowed to do this. But can you imagine, this is a government, a top government official who presents himself before the king. He's in the king's court. All the people, all the, all the representatives of the nations under the empire are all coming to this, to this king and to this court. Do you think Daniel is going to be allowed to stand in that court with sackcloth and ashes? Have you ever thought this through? I mean, this is astounding. Daniel's standing there receiving all these people, and he is in sackcloth and ashes. Everyone knows he's in mourning. That's what sackcloth and ashes told everyone instantly. They're like, why are you mourning? What's going on? He says, I'm praying. Well, what are you praying for? Well, 70 years. For 70 years. It's almost up. For us, 70 years, if God will just answer, 70 years, if it only applies to my deportation. Can you see the cry of Daniel's heart for his nation and for his people and for his God and for his temple? It's all in his heart and he can't do otherwise. Of course, this prayer is based on the word of God. And so Daniel exceeds the normal three times a day, and now he is in sackcloth and ashes. Calvin says, when we fully embrace the grace of God which he offers us, he meets us and precedes us with his goodness. And thus, we in time respond to his offers and bear witness to our expectation of his promises. Nothing, therefore, can be better for us than to ask what he has promised. Thus... In the prayers of the saints, these feelings are united as they plead God's promises wherein they entreat him. And we cannot possibly exercise true confidence in prayer except by resting firmly on God's word. And this is exactly what Daniel did. His prayer was based on scripture. By the way, that's why I push it so hard. We have to pray for our leaders. Why? That's what God tells us to do. You know, when I get up here and pray, what has God told me to pray? He's told me to pray for the leaders as a first priority. This we have to do. There's no option here. And Daniel simply prays the scriptures. That's what he's doing. Calvin continues, for when Daniel, according to his daily custom, prayed so as to run the risk of death on the very account, we ought to gather from this, how naturally alert he was in prayer to God. He was conscious of want and sufficiency in himself, and hence he adds the use of sackcloth 
and ashes and fasting. Daniel says, the three times a day is not enough. All that I'm doing, all that I've done over the years, that's not enough. Now it's time for sackcloth and ashes and fasting. Now it's time 100%. That's what Daniel's doing. That's where he's at. He's fasting. He's not even eating. And so we see then verses 4 through 8, the confession of iniquity politicized. Notice that this entire prayer of Daniel is a confession. First, he confesses who God is, verse 4. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God who keeps covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. By the way, with that word awesome, he is speaking of that terrible, dreadful judgment side of God. You know, God does render true justice. You know, this is why they've been deported. This is why they're in Babylon. This is why they are slaves. This is why he's been emasculated. All the the negative side, this is why it's happened. Because they've sinned and God is just. And he reminds God of who he is. And he, he embraces God in all that he is. Calvin says, we ought to know how impossible it is to obtain anything from God unless we appear in his sight with fear and trembling and become truly humbled in his presence. This is the first point to be noticed. He later continues, the Israelites were in exile. We know how hard that tyranny was, how they were oppressed by the most cruel reproaches and disgrace, how brutally they were treated by their conquerors. You know, they're they're all slaves. They're treated however they want to treat them. I don't know if you realize it, but even after Daniel has immediately been exalted, the next thing that happens, he's got the, the, the chief guard at his door telling him he's going to kill him if he doesn't tell the king's dream. I mean, what is that? I mean, that's a level of slavery off the chart. I'm going to kill you if you don't tell me my dream. How am I going to know your dream? Yet God gives it to Daniel. And by the way, Daniel rescues everyone else because God gives him that dream. But that's the kind of slavery he's under. I find it beautiful that Daniel shows his love for God. He's fulfilling the greatest commandment. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might, with all thy strength. This is the first and great commandment. The second is likened to it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I find this fascinating. In Daniel's prayer, he's doing both. He's doing both of those commands. He's honoring God. He's loving God. And at the same time, he's interceding for his own people. He's caring for his own nation. Isn't this what prayer is what prayer is all about? Isn't this what intercession, why we are called to intercede? When we intercede, we are fulfilling the greatest commandments. You see, Daniel confesses as well what he and his people have done. 
He says in verse 5 and 6, We have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Neither have we heeded your prophets who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and the people of the land. By the way, I don't know if you realize it, but here in verse 5 and 6, he confesses his sin in a sevenfold way. He just says it over and over. We did wrong, all of us. From the top, the king, the princes, the fathers, the people. We all did wrong. We all deserve what we got. That's his prayer. He stacks up their crimes, showing their behavior is not only criminal, but deliberately and intensely, their rebellion was wholesale. It reminds me of the verse that Samuel told Saul when he disobeyed. In 1 Samuel 15, 23. For rebellion is as a sin of witchcraft. And stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. And God has judged them for their sinfulness. And Daniel is interceding on their behalf. Not only have they heaped up sin and rebellion. Even though they're warned by the prophet. Not just Isaiah. Not just Jeremiah. Ezekiel. Prophet after prophet. And what do they do? They persecute them instead of listening to them. And even when warned, the wisest and most noble, the kings and the princes, have all committed this outrageous, criminal behavior against God. And notice the the strategic nature of the proclamation of the prophets. Who do they go to first? Did you notice this? By the way, I think this should be included in the definition of a prophet. I find this true throughout the entire Old Testament. That the prophets go to the kings. Who did they go to first? Does it say they went to the people first? No. Does it say they went to the fathers first? No. Say so they went to the princes first? No. They went to the king first. The kings, then the princes, then the fathers, then the people. Do you see the leadership? It's obvious. It's very clear. He's saying the prophet went to the top. He had the boldness to proclaim the truth to the king himself. By the way, I believe this is why Paul gives us that final commission to pray. I exhort, therefore, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercession, and giving of thanks be made for all men, kings, and all who are in authority. You see, we're called to do the same thing, to pray for those at the top. That's why I give you the prayer list. This is what we're called to do. We're doing the same thing Daniel did. you read the books of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, you'll notice they went to the kings first. And leadership is important. And by the way, I believe that God holds leaders in greater accountability because he placed them in that position of leadership. Will we intercede? Will we be like Daniel? You know, I find this fascinating. It seems to me that no one else cares. Daniel's the only guy. He's the only one we have recorded as praying. That means that one person, listen carefully, one person interceded and God blessed the entire nation. What does that mean for us? 
It means God has called you to do the same. One person. One person interceded. Will you intercede? Will you intercede? Will you be a Daniel? Will you be willing to pray? How can we neglect those who lead us? By the way, we're not only told to pray for our leaders. I want you to pull out your prayer list real quick, by the way. We're also told in Galatians 6.10 to do good unto all men, but especially those of the household of faith. So if we're to pray for all these leaders, how much more should we pray for the leaders of our own church? And by the way, that's why I've given you in day number one plenty of room to write in Dr. Edgecombe. Dr. Jared Edgecombe, just write his name right in there. And you have plenty of room to write your other elders in there as well. And by the way, don't just remember them on the first of the month. Remember them each time you pick up the prayer list. They're the ones who care for your soul. They're the ones who lead your church. Shouldn't we pray for them? How can we neglect it? It's essential to pray for all who are in authority. So we must pray for the pastors of the church. So write their name right in there and remember them in prayer each time you pick up the prayer list. By the way, you notice I folded it so you can put it in your Bible, use it as a bookmark, and as you read through your Bible, just pull out the prayer list every day and remember your leaders in prayer. Remember your pastor in prayer. Daniel owned the penalty and responsibility of the sin of his nation. Look in verse 7 and 8. He says, O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us shame of face as it is this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those near and those afar off, and all the countries which you have driven them because of their unfaithfulness, which they have committed against you. O Lord, to us belongs shame of face to our kings, our princes, our fathers. We have sinned against you. He says, We all ought to be ashamed. We've sinned. Oh, God, please forgive. But Daniel takes full responsibility. Does he say they? Is that what's in there? Did you look at the pronouns? No, he said we, us. Daniel includes himself. This great prayer warrior, this great man of God, includes himself. By the way, how, how dare we? look down upon our leaders and act as if we would somehow be any better. We all know power corrupts. How do we know we would be any better than those that we look down upon and talk about and criticize, etc.? Is that what we're called to do? Hmm, I have a hard time doing that and giving thanks for them at the same time. No, we're called to pray for them. I find it fascinating as I study the history of our nation. Do you know that every single church, every single Sunday, prayed publicly for their leaders until the revolution? And then after the revolution, guess who they didn't like? They showed they didn't like. They fought a war against him, the king. So what did they do? They threw out the baby with the bathwater and they said, we're not going to pray for any of the leaders anymore because we don't like the king. And the Bible says to pray for kings and all are in authority. And we think this representative thing is better anyway. And so we're just going to throw it all away. And has the church ever returned to it? Not in America. Not yet. By the way, I find it fascinating. Guess which church does? The Episcopal church. They never threw away the king. So they still pray for their leaders every Sunday just as the American churches had done all along. 
Fascinating history. Very interesting. But did you notice, by the way, in verse 7 and 8, when he says, To us belongs shame of face, to our kings, our princes, and the fathers, because we have sinned against you. Did you notice who is missing? Remember the first time it said that the prophets went to the kings, the father, or the princes, the fathers, and the people. Who's missing? The people. What is, what is, it, what is being said there? It's saying leadership is vital. And these leaders are responsible for how they led. And by the way, every one of you men in your home, you are responsible for how you lead. The, the pastors of the church here, you're responsible for how you lead this church. Leadership matters. Leadership matters. There's a responsibility that God gives. And it is emphasized in this very prayer that they have greater accountability. And he leaves off the people. He said it's because of our leaders. We did wrong. Again, emphasizing the need to pray for our leaders. This is essential. According to 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4, this is what we're called to do. And yet, how quick do we cease doing it? How quick do we cease doing it? I find it fascinating. Do you know that when the first prophet and the first king got together on their coronation day, and Samuel stands with Saul, almost as it were with his arm around him, he says these incredible words concerning prayer. He says in 1 Samuel 12, 23 and 24, he says, but God forbid that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. But I will teach you the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth. For consider what great things he has done for you. He said, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord. Do we consider lack of prayer to be a sin? That's what Samuel called it. Samuel called it a sin. To neglect to pray. And to especially pray for his leaders. Do we consider it a sin? No, leaders lead. And it's essential that we pray for them. It's absolutely vital. By the way, we, we can't miss this. Do you know that this is the same concept is repeated? I want you to turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 9. Here's, here's the building of the walls in Jerusalem. Here's later on. God has answered the prayer. Okay, but look what Nehemiah has to say in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 32. Now, therefore, our God, he's praying as well, the great and mighty and awesome God, there, there's the same word Daniel used, who keeps covenant and mercy. Do not let all the trouble seem small before you that has come upon us. So obviously, he's having difficulty building these walls. But look at what it says. Our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all on all the people from the days of the kings of Assyria until this day. However, you are just in all that has befallen us. For you have dealt faithfully and we have done wickedly. Neither our kings nor our princes, our priests, nor our fathers have kept your law, nor heeded your commandments and your testimonies, which you have testified against them. And he goes on to repeat their sin. By the way, did you notice again what was left out the second time? The people. 
He does exactly the same thing that Daniel does. He's emphasizing the leadership and the responsibility of leadership. And so we've seen Daniel's commitment to intense prayer in verses 1 through 3. We've seen the confession of iniquity politicized and particularly the responsibility of leaders in verses 4 through 8. Now we see the curse ignored and yet popular. Astounding. They've ignored the curses that God said he would bring upon them. Look at this. Daniel again continues his confession. Notice that only mercy and forgiveness are pleaded because they were to blame in verses 9 through 11. He says, To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. Though we have rebelled against him, we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws which he set before us by his servants the prophets. Yes, all Israel has transgressed your law and has departed so as not to obey your voice. Therefore the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. You say, what were those? What were these curses that were poured out? And, and, and by the way, Daniel continues to repeat this sin because he knows what we know in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. By the way, there may be some of you here today, you've never come to Jesus Christ. You've never, you've never dealt with your sin. And you've never come to Jesus Christ as the only Savior for your sin. And I remind you today that that verse is true. That if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteous, unrighteousness. And you say, just? How is God just to forgive my sin? Only through the death of Jesus Christ. On the cross. On our behalf. That is it. Otherwise, justice only leads us to hell. Where we deserve and where we belong for our sin. But God pours out his mercy. If you've never come to Christ, take that verse today. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You desire a clean heart? Oh, God can give you that heart today. But Daniel makes it clear that it was not God who's to blame for all that had happened to him. No, it was their sin. It was their wrong that they had committed, that they had done. By the way, I want to read to you these, um, these curses Turn with me to Leviticus chapter 26. Absolutely astounding what is going on in regard to these curses. God tells in in chapter 26 of all the blessings he will pour out upon his people. And he gives blessing after blessing after blessing after blessing. But then in verse 14 he says, But if you do not obey me and do not observe these commandments and you despise my statutes, if you're... If your soul abhors my judgment so that you do not perform all my commandments but break my covenant, this also, I also will do this to you. I will, I will even appoint terror over you, wasting disease and fever, which shall consume the eyes and cause sorrow to the heart. You shall sow your seed in vain and your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you and you will be defeated by your enemies." Those who hate you shall reign over you, and you shall flee when no one pursues you. 
Look at verse 18. After all this, if you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. And he lists another seven ways in which you'll curse them. Look at verse 23. By all these things, if by all these things you are not reformed by me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you, and I will punish you yet seven times for your sins. And he lists another seven things. He says it again in verse 27, after all this, if you do not obey me, but walk contrary to me, I will walk contrary to you in fury. It says, I will become angry against you, and I will pour out my wrath upon you and upon your nation because you sinned. And because you will not turn from it. There he repeats the same. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28 has exactly the same concept. Starting in verse 15. But it shall come to pass. If you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God. To observe carefully all his commandments and statutes. Which I command you today. All these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city and cursed Shall you be in the country? Cursed shall you be in the basket and in your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your body and the produce of your land, in the increase of your cattle and the offspring of your flocks. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will send you on send on you cursing and confusion, and rebuke you in all that you set your hand to do until you are destroyed, until you perish quickly. You see these? Daniel is crying out and saying, God have mercy. We have done this. We have done this. Oh, God have mercy. And let me ask the question, have we not done this in our land too? Have we not murdered our children continually for years and years? Have we not seen our nation turn into the most wicked ways probably the most deceitful time is upon us now. We are watching the same thing. Will we pray? Daniel said all these curses. This is an astounding word. He said, you picture now someone, something below, and someone literally pouring out the curses. That's what he says. He uses the word pour out. And he says, the curses have been poured out upon us. All of them until it's drained dry. All of them have been poured out upon us. What's astounding is what occurs. Verses 12 through 14. Look at this. He has confirmed his words, verse 12, which he spoke against us and against our judges who judged us by bringing upon us this great disaster. For under the whole heaven, never has such been done. as has been done to Jerusalem, as is written in the law of Moses. All this disaster, look at this, has come upon us. Look, yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. They're not doing anything about it. No prayer, no repentance, no nothing. They don't care. They just don't care. No doubt in their captivity, they're blaming God. Absolutely astounding. I, 
I'm astounded by these verses. But then I ask myself, are we the same? Are we not the same? Do we pray? Do we confess? Do we care? People of Israel did not. Daniel did, thankfully. Goes on to say in the word of God, Therefore, the Lord has kept, look at this, the disaster in mind. The, the, the curses are continuing to be poured out because we don't care. Because we don't care. Listen, I cannot, what, what more can we say to, to encourage us to pray? What more can we say? This is it. He has kept the disaster in mind and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all his works which he does, though we have not obeyed his voice. Oh, will you obey his voice this morning? I believe God is speaking to you. Will you obey? By the way, just one guy prays. One guy prays. And the entire nation is rescued. God answers. You know, if God answered Daniel's prayer, he's not even supposed to go into the temple. He's not even allowed in the temple if the temple were, were there. So he has every reason not to pray. And yet, God answered his prayer. I ask you this morning, will you pray? This is what God calls you to do. And to neglect it is to, is to ask, listen carefully, is to ask for the disaster to be poured out. That is what Daniel is saying. He's saying we wouldn't pray. So the disaster just kept getting poured out. Just kept getting poured out. Will we pray? And as well, he again emphasizes leaders. He talks about the judges in this paragraph. And Daniel understands that vital importance of praying. I find it astounding that Daniel even prays for his enemies. <laughs> he, he doesn't even want to. He doesn't even want to interpret the dream to Nebuchadnezzar. Because he cares about Nebuchadnezzar and he, he's been praying for him. He tells him to break off his sins. You remember the time he, he interprets the dream to, to Nebuchadnezzar that he's the head of gold, etc. And he says, break off your sins. By the way, that image got destroyed. So he's saying, break off your sins. Lest this occur to you. Lest this happen to you. Will we pray? Daniel understood the need to pray from verse 7 of Jeremiah 29, as I mentioned earlier. I find it fascinating in the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon of Jesus Christ. He says in Matthew 5, 44, But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Wow, he's saying to pray specifically for the enemy. And then notice he, he goes on to say, this is how you prove your sonship. Starting in verse 45 of Matthew 5. That you may be the sons of your father in heaven, for he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends his rain on the just and on the unjust. 
For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore, you shall be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. He's saying when you pray even for your enemies and those who persecute you, you prove to the world that you are a son of God because only God's people do this. Will you pray and prove that you're a child of God? You see, this is essential. This actually shows everyone and shows God that we're a son, that we're a child of God. Will we pray even for those who are our enemies? Will we prove that we are sons of God by our prayer? Well, the 70 years had continued. The disaster had continued to be poured out upon them. Daniel goes on in his prayer, verse 15 and 16. He says, And now, O Lord God, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made yourself a name as it is this day. We have sinned. We have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because of our sins and the iniquity of our fathers. Jerusalem and your people are a reproach to all who are around us. He's saying, God, you gave yourself a great name when you delivered us out of slavery in Egypt. All the world knows these incredible miracles that occurred, one after another, ten in a row, one after another. You perform miracles, and miracles where you would literally part the sea, finally, and we walk through, and then he sends his chariots in to go get us, and you brought it back on them and wiped out the greatest army in the world of the day. Just wiped them all out. With a push of a wave, you showed how glorious you are, for you are the great God. He said, but now, your shame of face to us. But not only does our sin bring reproach upon us, our sin has brought reproach upon you. You see this? This is what's happening in this prayer. And he said, because of that, because we have sinned, we are a reproach to all who are around us. And so Daniel begins to present arguments for answered prayer. This is beautiful. He reminds the Lord of his glory and his great name, all that he had done. He says, God, you can do it. You can do it again. Here he joins God's power. Calvin says, here he joins God's power with his pity, implying that when the people were led forth, it was not only a specimen of paternal favor towards the family of Abraham, but an exhibition of divine power. goes on to say, Daniel here excludes whatever merit there might be in the people. In reality, he does not possess any. The single hope of the people considered in, consisted in God's having regard to himself alone and by no means to their conduct. As if he had said, although the number of our iniquities is so great that we must perish a hundred times over, yet thy promised mercies are far more numerous 
meaning thy justice surpasses whatever thou mayest find in us of the deepest dye of guilt. He's saying, God, it's not based on us. Your blessings are not based on us. Your blessings are based upon your mercy. Your mercy. And he cried out and began to make arguments for the mercy of God. He goes on, of course, in this passage to say that they were reproached. Can you imagine? You know, here, when they conquered Israel, they would have made fun of Israel's God. And then they had done it again. And then they did it again. Three times they had conquered them, remember? And they brought another group each time. Every time, who suffered reproach? Not just the people of God, but God's name himself. They said, oh, who is your God? Supposedly, he took you out of Egypt. What is he now? Did he go to sleep? Is he on vacation? Well, maybe, and I can see him taunting the children of Israel. Maybe, you know, your God was young and he was strong when he took you out of Egypt. And now he's an old, old God. And he's so old, he can't take care of you anymore. Can you hear all their taunts? I mean, one thing after another, they're going to taunt the children of Israel. And by the way, they had done this for 70 years. Daniel's saying, we're a reproach. We're a reproach. We're a byword among the people. And then we find, last of all, his cry for immediate pity, verses 17 through 19. I, lo- I love this. His focus is upon God and his glory. And all his arguments in prayer are pleading to God. Pleading to God to exalt his name. The glory of God is associated with his temple. Look at verse 17. Now therefore our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications. For the Lord's sake, cause your face to rise upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. He's saying, God, your, your sanctuary is a reproach. It's, it's desolate. There's nothing there. Will you smile upon it? Can you imagine trying to pray this prayer? There's nothing there. How are you going to smile upon nothing there? I don't know if you've thought through. I mean, Daniel, he's, he's grasping for everything he can. He's saying, God, will you answer? Albert Barnes says, regarding for the Lord's sake, that he would be propitious for his own sake, to wit that his glory might be promoted, that his excellent character might be displayed, that his mercy and compassion might be shown. All true prayer has its seat in a desire that the glory of God may be promoted and the excellence of his character displayed. That is of more consequence than our welfare and the gratification of our wishes, and that should be uppermost in our hearts when we approach the throne of grace. This is the mindset of Daniel. He continues on. Look at verse 18. He says, oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city called by your name. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. God, it's only your mercy. Then look at verse 19. He just cries out to God and says, God, you've got to do it now. You've got to help us now. By the way, this is how we pray. Look at this. Verse 19, O Lord God, hear. O Lord God, forgive. O Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, 
for your city and your people are called by your name. He said, God, you've got to do it. Now. Now. Daniel intercedes. Does God answer? Listen, I've got to show you this. This is absolutely incredible. God answers in the most amazing way. In fact, we have it decreed. Turn with me to the book of Ezra. Here's in Ezra chapter 1, we actually have the king's decree. God moved the king by this very prayer of Daniel. God not only tells Daniel, if you continue on in this chapter, you'll see God, and continue on in the book of Daniel, you'll see that God gives him an answer to this prayer for all of human history. It's astounding. But look at chapter 1 of Ezra. Thus says Cyrus, the king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth and the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house. Here's the king over the empire. He has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who among you of all... Who is among you of all his people? May his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel, which is in Jerusalem. And whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of this place help him and give him silver and gold with goods and livestock beside the freewill offerings of the house of the Lord. This is the decree of the king. He's saying, right now, I decree that everybody that are Jews, they all go home. I'm going to set the slaves free. All go home. And I want you to go home for one reason. I want you to go back and build the temple. And all of you who are around them and their neighbors and stuff, I want you to give them silver and gold. Give them your livestock. Give them whatever you got. Isn't this astounding? What an answer to prayer. Can you get better than this? It actually does get better. Look look at Ezra chapter 6. We have it again. It talked about in the first year of King Cyrus. He issues this decree. Look at, look at verse 8. By the way, he gets in on this. Moreover, I issue a decree as to what you shall do for the elders of these Jews, for the building of this house of God. Look at this. Let the cost be paid at the king's expense. Hey, he says, I want to get in on this too. I want to pay for it too. In the region beyond the river, this is to be given immediately to those men. They are not to be hindered. And whatever they need, young bulls, rams, lambs, for the burnt offering of God, of the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, oil, according to the request of the priest who were in Jerusalem, let it be given them day by day without fail. Look at this, verse 10. That they may offer sacrifices of sweet aroma to the God of heaven and pray for the king and his sons. Why did the king issue the decree? Prayer. Let me ask you, will you pray for the king? Will you remember our leaders in prayer? I find it fascinating when I visit the legislators' offices and I look on their desks. These are believing and unbelieving legislators. I'll look at that top real estate on their desk, what's closest to them. Guess what I'll often find? A little stack. A little stack of notes. I'll say, hey, what is is that little stack of notes on your desk? And guess what they tell me? I find this fascinating. This is believers and unbelievers. I've had them both do the same thing. They say, oh, this, this, 
is an extremely important stack. When I get discouraged and I'm down and I need help, I look at this stack because this stack is a stack of notes of people who have told me that they're praying for me. And so I read these notes for encouragement when I need it. I keep it right there on my desk. Will you pray? Will you pray? Singularly. Daniel prayed. One person prayed and changed the nation. And God answered. The question is, will we pray? May the Lord teach us to pray, even today. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would bless your word to each one of our hearts. Oh, Father, we cry out with that only, that only request of the disciples. Lord, teach us to pray. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake we pray.